0: beginning this, <clears throat> this evening's talk in uh, kind of an unusual way with uh, a few moments of closing our eyes and visualizing and or feeling that you're sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama 2,500 years ago towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree. And after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the pos- poison arrows of greed, of hatred, and of delusion at Siddhartha Gotama, the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and strength of his great vow and his courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by these words. What makes you think that you have the right to be sitting here? What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here where and how you are? Just who do you think you are anyway? The Bodhisattva, the just-about-to-be-Buddha, balanced with the deep, power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind protected within the great strength of his mindful presence which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of investigation that was accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy. Siddhartha Gotama sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, all of these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta, with his amazing grace, just simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to have any power over the Buddha. And so we sit, maybe not always exactly like the Buddha sat on that night more than 2,500 years ago, but we sit, we practice, we practice with sincerity and with determination at home and now here in retreat. We sit with dedication and with our wholesome aspirations often and clearly felt. And as we practice the particular qualities of heart and mind that were all so perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree, as we practice these capacities of heart and mind continue to develop, to deepen, and to mature within ourselves. It's, an, it's actually inevitable that this happens if we keep practicing. Each and all of you are practicing to attend carefully, mindfully, and wisely to the various objects that arise in one of the four foundations or four domains of mindfulness. The first domain being the body. What and how we experience the body in the body. The second domain being the feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral in relationship to whatever arises in body and mind. And the third domain of mindfulness, being mindfulness of the mind, jitta nupasana, mindfulness of thoughts and states of mind, mindfulness of the objects of mind. And the fourth domain of mindfulness is mindfulness of Dhammas, which means attending to experience from the perspective of the nature of things, from the perspective of Dhammas. So, for instance, using the Four Noble Truths, or the Three Universal Characteristics, or the Seven Factors of Awakening as the developing and clarifying mirror through which we discern our practice, through which we discern our experience in practice. As our mindfulness becomes strong and steady, we learn to discern the particular and the universal features of an object more and more clearly. And we're more and more clearly able to distinguish between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind with the ever and more subtle distinctions that arise through the process of our practice. With this ongoing development within our practice, investigation of states, which is the second factor of awakening, is developing and deepening. And so consequently, our interest, energy, and effort is inspired and fired up in a more ongoing way. In spending some uh, time uh, over the last few days considering what to talk about with you uh, between a a Dhamma talk about hatred and (laughs) a Dhamma talk about delusion, I had to think a lot about what to talk about. And it came up that an appropriate and hopefully helpful and meaningful topic for uh, this evening, we would take a look at energy, at effort. So energy, effort, virya in Pali. And this is the third factor of awakening. It's also one of the five uh, controlling faculties or as they're called in their maturity, the five spiritual powers which are faith, effort, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. Virya is also One of the ten paramis, the ten perfections or the ten purified qualities of mind and heart that are developing all along the way of our practice. And I'll be exploring uh, this with you a bit more in a later Dhamma talk. So what is effort energy? And particularly, what is it? in relationship to the teachings of the Buddha, and even more specifically, what is it and how does it manifest in relationship to our practice. Energy is very often inspired and initiated uh, by some degree of a sense of spiritual urgency, by some degree of a sense of samvega, which we talked about very early on in this retreat. I once heard uh, Virya referred to as the chief root hero which I, I thought was a very interesting and intriguing description of Virya. The chief root hero. So why might this have been said? Virya is a state of zeal or vigor and enthusiasm. It manifests as exertion and perseverance and diligence and fearlessness or at least a degree of fearlessness in facing difficult aspects of our practice in facing difficult aspects of our human experience and at times even facing the dangers inherent in our human experience. This diligent and enthusiastic energy in and with our practice helps to bring together, support, and actually call into play other underlying or co-emergent wholesome states and actions of mind and body, such as investigation of states, interest, courage, concentration, strength and calmness and Joy of mind and heart. And of course, a deepening clarity of mindfulness in relationship to whatever shows up in the mind and body. When virya virya is present in our practice, the mind and heart are in what is classically called a state of non-collapse there's a brightness and a a brightness of presence and mindful awareness, which has sometimes been described uh, experientially as a sense of aliveness, which I have certainly experienced in that way, and I suspect many of you have too, this sense of aliveness. This aliveness is so intimately connected to the effort and energy involved involved with and needed in practicing basically it's the mental effort the energy that's present in every single moment of mental activity the mental effort the energy that's present in every single moment of mindful awareness an investigation. And as I'm sure each one of you have tasted at times, there's a kind of courageous and balanced effort that we're called upon to make in our practice. The about-to-be Buddha's tremendous determination and effort and the flow of his effortless effort that night under the bow tree meant that there was just enough effort being made in just the right way. Just enough energy being expended in just the right way. And although each of us knows that energy and effort are essential factors for our practice, it's really shown to us uh, very directly and clearly in a very intimate way, especially during times of intensive retreat practice. What's shown to us is that a great dedication, enthusiasm, and balanced exertion and wholesome endeavor is needed to really truly engage in this process of awakening. If anyone ever told us that one just kind of floats through it and reaches the other shore without expending very much energy or without expending very much effort, that it's all really very quite easy We can be absolutely sure that they weren't speaking from experience, or that for some reason they were lying to us. So, an important and crucial aspect of our practice is learning how to arise, uh, arouse, or arise the appropriate energy and effort. Learning how to make a wholehearted effort in the right way. Too much effort leads to too much energy, which can manifest as restlessness. Overefforting can also sometimes result in contracting around experience, which creates quite a tightening a tenseness in the body and a tenseness in the mind, rather than uh, an open flow, an increase of energy feeding the that feeds the blossoming of our practice. Not enough effort given to practice leads to too little energy, which can manifest in sleepiness, lethargy, and maybe also Mind states of discouragement and doubt rather than a very zestful inspiration and interest. This process in and with our practice is really a balancing act. As practice develops, as it blossoms and as it matures, we learn to recognize more and more clearly the quality of the effort that we're putting into our practice. So, are we trying too hard? Are we over-efforting? Are we tightening and tensing with the effort that we're putting forth in practice? Or are we just too laid back? lethargic, maybe in fact misunderstanding what a relaxed energy, what a relaxed attitude and effort means in relationship with practice, thus experiencing a sinking body, a sinking mind and heart, all too often in our practice. We need to regularly tune up tune up the quality and the attitudinal approach of the effort that we practice with. Just like a musician, even the most accomplished musician, even a musician with perfect pitch has to tune their instrument regularly, quite regularly, we need to tune up. For instance, like a guitar player, if the strings are too tight, what happens? They break. If the strings are too loose, they have no tone and the music can't be played. As our energetic and effort, ear, so to say, is honed, we're able to more and more easily Notice that when there's even a subtle imbalance of effort attitudinally or energetically happening in our practice. And so we really need to regularly tune up in order to play the very beautiful music of our practice. And this is really important. This goes on all through the years of our practice forever and ever until we're a Buddha. (laughs) We're not going to come to it and then just stop and it's all perfect. We just keep tuning up and it gets subtler and subtler and subtler. Uh, I recently found a photograph um, of an elephant uh, a full-grown, very large elephant that uh, was trained to balance on a beach ball with uh, its two front legs. And this was an illustration, a photographic illustration, (coughs) that went along with a verbal description of balanced effort. And I'm not gonna hold up the picture and show it to you, but I think I'll I'll post it on the bulletin board down, down in the uh, dining room. kind of, is a good reminder. (laughs) The Buddha said, energy that's wisely initiated and wisely used should be regarded as the root of all insight, all attainment. So, clearly, Energy and effort <clears throat> is a factor of enlightenment and it's a spiritual power. Energy and effortless effort <clears throat> is a circular happening. And by that I mean, we, we put forth energy. We make an effort in every posture in our practice. Sitting, standing, lying down, moving, walking. We put forth energy and we make an effort in every moment that we mindfully connect and investigate, in every moment that we explore our immediate experience. And at least some of the time, it's just the right amount. It's in tune. Whenever there's just the right amount put forth, then this energy and effort creates more of itself. And we enter into the circular uh, uh, quality or the circular uh, sense of sustaining energy. And what we might experience as an effortless effort in our practice and certainly many of you have experienced that at least for moments so how to balance the slackness of mind how does one exert the mind on the occasion when it needs to be exerted when the mind is slack with uh, an over-laxness, carelessness, sloppiness, sloth, a sense of apathy, when there's a lack of energy, basically, then instead of sinking into and or developing tranquility or concentration or even equanimity, one should begin by developing and engaging in investigation of states which quite naturally will bring up energy and also very possibly bring in a degree of joy. There are some wonderful metaphors that I'd like to share with you uh, that the Buddha used to teach his students about balancing the mind in practice. And this is from the Buddha uh, to his students. Suppose a man or woman wanted to make a small fire burn bigger and she or he put wet grass on it, put wet cow dung on it, put wet sticks on it, sprinkled it with water and scattered dust on it. Would that man or woman be able to make the small fire burn bigger?" (laughs) And of course the monks and nuns listening to the Buddha replied, "'No, Venerable Sir' and then the Buddha goes on and says, "'So too, yogis, when the mind is slack, that is not the time to develop tranquility, concentration or equanimity, enlightenment factors. Why? Because a slack mind cannot be roused by those states. It's time to develop the investigation of states, the energy and the happiness factors. A slack mind can well be roused by those states. And then the Buddha continues with his metaphors. Suppose a woman or man wanted to make a small fire burn bigger and put dry grass, dry cow dung, dry sticks on it, and then blew on it, and didn't scatter dust on it. Would that man or woman be able to make that small fire burn bigger? And the monks and nuns listening to the Buddha replied, Yes, Venerable Sir, yes. So often in the suttas, uh, the Buddha uses very um, practical and daily life kinds of examples in terms of explaining uh, and describing and uh, metaphorically uh, uh, bringing forth the teachings in that way. And I I really uh, find that very helpful and interesting, actually. The energizing factors in our practice are mindfulness, investigation of states, energy, joy, and happiness. The tranquilizing factors in our practice are concentration, tranquility, and equanimity. As we learn and understand this more and more clearly, through our direct experience within our practice, we're able to tune up as needed to bring a balanced effort and a balanced energy into our practice. About 14 years ago now, <clears throat> I was very inspired Uh, by Sada Upandita, who was teaching the month-long retreat uh, that I was sitting. At that point, he was in his early 80s. I clearly saw and experienced that abundant, very abundant Dharma energy isn't necessarily age-related. Sada Upandita gave a Dhamma talk, every single night for that whole month. He offered a clear and... Ins- he offered very clear and incisive interviews every morning for six days in a row each week and also did extra practice interviews occasionally in the afternoon. He also met with various guests and various friends many afternoons. and. He also took a walk on the days when the weather permitted. Saito Upandita's Dhamma energy was very powerfully projected out to all of the yogis and was one of the primary factors for the tremendous practice energy that ensued in me during that retreat. I was at times quite surprised and amazed and deeply grateful for how much practice energy was available for me at the age of 62, considerably and actually consistently more than in my younger years. So there's hope for all of us in our old age if we keep practicing. The Buddha, with his great clarity and compassion, spoke about what he termed is the nutriment for each of the factors of awakening. What is the sustenance? What is the active nourishment that we can feed the mind and heart for the arising? the development, the fulfillment and the perfection of the factor of effort, energy. So at times we might begin with giving a careful and a wise attention in reflection of the fearfulness of states such as anger, hatred, desire, strong desire, fear, jealousy, constant dissatisfaction, states where no happiness exists. This can inspire a sense of urgency in us, bringing forth a deeper and stronger energy for practice. we are told to reflect on the journey of awakening to be traveled. The journey, in fact, taken by all of the Buddhas and all of the great disciples. This being the very same journey that we're taking. And to recognize, in fact, that it can't be taken by a lazy, idle person. The Buddha encourages us to reflect on his great journey, to reflect on the remarkable helpfulness of his teachings, and to reflect on the noble and incredibly beautiful heritage of the Dhamma that we're connected to, and to reflect with the understanding that the, really the best way to honor these things all of these things, is through our diligent practice. So it's not just thinking about it. It's to respond with diligent practice. We're told to reflect, and this one I think is uh, very uh, important, all of it is, but we're told to reflect on all that has so generously been given to us through our lifetime. And in relationship to the more immediate present, what has been offered to us so that we can now, right now, sustain our practice. And the best way to acknowledge and to give thanks and to be a credit for this is to practice with diligence and to produce, if you will, great fruit for all the givers, and for all beings, I like to add. We learn that stiffness, dullness, and sleepiness of mind and body can be removed by bringing a careful and wise attention For instance, to the perception of light. Or to changing postures, if it's uh, really necessary. Or to spending time out of doors. And by engaging in investigation of states. The Buddha tells us that a very important and actually he called it the chief external condition for the arising of the factor of energy is to associate with energetic people and to not spend a whole lot of time with lazy, idle people. So if you think about how you feel when you're in the company of energetic people, or I would say other energetic people besides your energetic self, And how you might feel in the company spending a lot of time or you know, a fair amount of time with really lazy, idle people. How do you feel? How does that work in you? We're told uh, to review what the most important endeavors are in relationship to our practice. And it's indicated that cultivating the seven factors of enlightenment, which are mindfulness, investigation of states, energy, effort, joy and happiness, tranquility, concentration and equanimity is one of these important endeavors if we want to awaken. And last but not least, we're told that we should make a resolve to incline the mind, to incline the heart towards the establishment of a balanced energy, towards the establishment of a balanced effort. There's no meditation practice, there's no fruit of practice, without making an effort, without using energy. In relationship to the consistent and tremendous energy that Saida Upandita put out during that month of retreat that I sat with him fourteen years ago, I uh, thought of and was inspired, re-inspired by a teaching that I'd uh, read and actually have treasured and been moved by over the years from the Chinese Taoist uh, philosopher Cheng Tzu. And I I shared this uh, uh, teaching with you er earlier on in the retreat, but I'd like to repeat it. The mind of a perfect woman, or man, is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects, but does not hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or man can act with an effortless effort. We could say that this is our practice, or more accurately, the possibility of our practice. The possibility of an effortless effort. The possibility of a tremendous abundance of energy as was manifesting through Siddhartha Gotama during that now famous night under the bow tree. The tremendous abundance of a balanced effort and energy. One of my Dhamma teacher colleagues and a dear friend, uh, Gina Sharp, says this about wise effort. By this effort, we do not seek to improve ourselves. Rather, we open our mind to understanding the qualities of heart, the qualities of mind, that keep us bound and suffering and those that set us free. This is a radical shift that requires profound kindness and compassion. By this effort we do not seek to improve ourselves, but rather we open our minds to understanding the qualities of heart and mind that keep us bound and suffering, and those that set us free. So we can say that we pay attention to understand, not to judge ourselves, and not to judge our practice. If we hold the view that Dhamma practice is about improving ourselves, We will then be making effort by judging, by judging whether or not we're making progress in a particular way, the way of improving ourselves. Wise effort in our practice is towards learning how suffering and happiness happen. In order to make this shift, many of us need to work or or to practice towards the ability to accept ourselves just as we are. Acceptance of the body, the mind, and the heart, just as it is in any given moment, is not an attitude of dropping into a kind of complacency. Working with ourselves in this way is not actually about improving the self but rather about, we could say, preparing the self to actually be able to make the shift away from getting better to getting more free. And actually just in learning to accept the self, we're starting to become free of the so-called self. The shift is really a crucial aspect of our practice. Some questions you might ask yourself now and then that can be helpful are Am I trying to get better in this moment, or am I practicing to understand and get free? What are the qualities of mind and heart that keep me bound and suffering? What are the qualities of mind and heart that set me free? And so now coming back around to this factor of energy, this factor of energy and effort. The Buddha's instruction is <clears throat> that if it's present in us, one is to know the enlightenment factor or the factor of effort, of energy, is present in me. If it's absent, one is to know the factor of effort and energy is absent in me. And we're told to learn and know how the enlightenment factor of energy comes to arise and how the development of it comes about. And so let's just sit quietly now for a few moments.